0: Before I read the scripture this morning, I want to tell you a little something about a recent experience I had. This past November, I traveled with my mom and my husband Richard to India to visit my brother Adam and his wife Sarah, who've been living there in Mumbai for almost three years now. I'll be honest, in spite of the three of us being fairly well-traveled, None of us were initially very eager to dive into the intensity and chaos of India. But when Adam and Sarah announced that they were considering staying there a fourth year, we decided that we could no longer justify not visiting. It was clear that India was not just going to be a blip on their resumes, but a period of their lives that would forever change the trajectory of their vocations and their perspectives on the world, if we really wanted to stay connected to who they were becoming, we needed to go and see where they were living and get a first-hand experience of this chapter of their lives. One of the unexpected gifts of that trip was the chance we had to converse with some Tibetan refugees in Dharamsala, A couple of times a week, a local nonprofit would invite English-speaking visitors to come in and have a conversation with the locals who were trying to learn English on an assigned topic. So soon after arriving in this rather not-too-big-of-a-room, we were asked to spread out on a quickly disappearing floor, and we each found ourselves surrounded by a small cluster of uh, eager-faced young men and women, many of whom, most of whom were from Tibet. And some of them were even dressed in the garnet and gold robes of the monks there. To my husband's uh, immense disappointment, though none of them appeared to be true Seminole fans. <laughs> He's from Tallahassee. So, the topic slated for discussion that day was, of all topics, religion. I couldn't help but share with my group how excited I was because my husband and I were ministers. To my surprise, they asked me right away if I had always been a Christian. And I said no, That although I had grown up in the church, it really wasn't until I had an experience in college that I really came to claim it for myself. They looked surprised and wanted to know more. And it soon became clear to me that their surprise was because they were so committed to Buddhism that they just couldn't believe that anyone would choose to become a Christian unless they just happened to have been one all their lives without ever questioning it. So even though I had no intentions of this being an evangelical moment, I found myself sharing uh, with them the story of how I came to believe that Jesus was more than just a character in the Bible. After I shared, a monk seated beside me began asking me some somewhat pointed questions about what Christians believe and then sharing with me some of what the Buddha taught. And something inevitably that he said would remind me of the Bible and so then I would share with him what the Bible said, uh, and even though I don't like to think of myself as competitive, <laughs> there was like a little bit of a competitive kind of creeping into our back and forth. And finally, with a note of triumph in his voice, he said, Ah, but the Buddha said, don't believe the teachings because I'm telling you to believe them. Test them out for yourself and, and see if they are really true. And for a moment, I felt a flash of envy that Christianity had no such mantra that would appeal to the more scientifically minded. But then it came to me. Well, you know, Jesus said to his disciples, come and see. And it's true. He did say those words. And when I saw that they were part of the lectionary this week, I was really excited But upon a closer reading of the text, I'm not so sure that what Jesus was saying is exactly the same thing that the Buddha was saying. So listen now for the word of God as it comes to us in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 35 through 42. It takes place right after the baptism of Jesus. The next day, John was again standing with two of his disciples. And as he watched Jesus walk by, he exclaimed, Look, here is the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him saying this, and they followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and saw them following, he said to them, What are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and see. So they came and saw where he was staying. And they remained with him that day. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon. Now one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew. Simon Peter's brother. He first found his brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means the Anointed One. He brought Simon to Jesus, who looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In spite of my claim in Dharamsala, I'm not so sure that Jesus' invitation to come and see was a I'll prove it to you kind of moment. It seems more like just an invitation to come hang out. There are no reported miracles. In fact, we have no idea what they did or talked about for the next several hours. All we know is that they were together. But maybe that's the point. So far in John's Gospel, there are all kinds of proposals about who Jesus is. Word made flesh... The true light, the son of God, the lamb of God, baptizer with the Holy Spirit, teacher, Messiah. Messiah is kind of like a commander-in-chief who would come and oust the Roman occupying forces and restore Jewish sovereignty, a new King David. The sheer number of different titles for Jesus in these first 41 verses of John force us to wrestle with the question of just who Jesus is. Are some names for him more accurate than others? Does Lamb of God clash with the Jewish title of Messiah? Or does it redefine it? I think that maybe there's only one way to find out. Which is why Jesus initially offers not explanations or answers, but an invitation to relationship. Come and see where I am staying, he says. If you think about it, it's an incredibly risky invitation. Come and see where I am staying? There is a reason that I know where you live is considered a threat. The place where we sleep is the place where we are most vulnerable. It tends to also be the place where we let ourselves go a little bit, where we take off our makeup and put on our sweatpants, where we sometimes get frustrated and grumpy and lazy Spend enough time with someone in the place where they live and you'll eventually see the side of them they'd rather not be made public. Now you could argue that Jesus, as the Son of God, already knew everything about everybody and so he wasn't taking much of a risk by inviting the disciples to come and see where he was staying. In fact, Jesus' encounter with Simon Peter suggests that Jesus knew exactly who he was dealing with. You are Simon, son of John, he says. You are to be called Cephas, or Peter, the rock. It's like Jesus is saying, look, I know who you are, Simon, and I know where you come from, son of John. And I even know where you are going, Peter, rock of the church. In other words, I know you, past, present, and future. So maybe the risky thing isn't that Jesus didn't know who he was inviting into his life. It's that he knew exactly who he was inviting. And he invited Them anyway. Peter, who would abandon him and then deny him three times in the moment of his greatest need. And later, Judas, who would betray him to the authorities. The good news isn't that Christian practices and teachings can be tested and proven to make us healthier, happier people. The good news. Is that our God is a God of relationships, a God who knows exactly how cruel and ugly and ungodlike we can be, and who came to be a part of our broken, messy lives anyway, who risked everything to be in relationship with us, and who invites us to do the same with God and with each other. I was recently asked by Presbyterians Today magazine to explore through poetry the question of why so many young adults raised in the church, or what I like to call MIW, missing in worship. They asked me to do this after I shared with them my own curiosity about why it is that faith has become such an important part of my own identity and vocation while neither of my brothers, both raised in the same family, in the same church, can with conviction claim Jesus as their Lord and Savior, nor are they convinced that this is necessarily a bad thing. The more I reflected on my own faith journey and talked with them about theirs, the more I became convinced that the difference between us was only this— that I had experienced the active presence of God and of Jesus in particular in ways that cut through my natural tendency towards skepticism. I had experiences that I couldn't explain any other way except by using the language that I learned in church. So I can't blame them for their uncertainty or unbelief. It's all too easy for me to remember being in the same position. And I know all too well how little I had to do with my own conversion. It came as a gift, unsolicited and undeserved. And I have learned over time that I can't talk them into believing, even though they know why it is that I believe. I can't convince them through argument that Christian is better even though they know that I feel like my life is better and richer because of it. The best I can do, I've decided, is to invite them wholeheartedly into my life, including my faith, and accept the invitation into theirs. And Jesus, I think, calls us even farther beyond members of our own family and friends, and to others, gifted to us by circumstance, or what we Presbyterians like to call the mysterious providence of God. And all we can do is...